KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us. I don't know, most of you probably stepped outside this morning across the state of Georgia. Here in North Georgia, it feels like fall. It's like 50-some degrees out there. Now, I know that's not the case down in South Georgia, but boy, it is nice to feel some cool weather headed our way. Let's get right to our panel today because we have a lot to talk about. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us as she does on Tuesdays. Hey, Tamar, thanks for being with us. Hi, Bill. It was a weird experience this morning having to grab a jacket on the way outside to walk my dog. <laughs> ah, but so <laughs> nice, so nice. Feeling. Absolutely. Donna Lowry, Lowry, host of Lawmakers on GPB-TV, is back with us today as well. Donna, we're glad you could be with us. Glad to be here on what I'm calling a fall morning, even though fall is, what, another week or so? Another week, about a week or so away. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret Coker, Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, the digital uh, news publication that is based down in Savannah, covers the coast, but also covers all, really, Uh, of the news, uh, important news of Georgia is uh, back. Margaret, it's not quite fall weather in Savannah yet. No, it's shorts and t-shirt weather, even though football season has begun. I want to give a big shout out to Georgia Southern with their huge victory over Nebraska over the weekend. Flying Eagles. (laughs) That was an amazing uh, game. Uh, to see unfold. But thank you for, by the way, people can read The Current at thecurrentga.org. And the org is important because you are a nonprofit organization. So thanks for being here, Margaret. And Stephen Fowler is back with us too. Stephen is, of course, a, a political reporter, the political reporter for GPB News. He's also the host of the podcast Battleground Ballot Box. Um, Stephen, Tell our, our our listeners, I know they can find ballot, Battle Around Ballot Box on any uh, podcast platform out there, but um, when does it come out? When do you put out the new editions? It usually comes out every other Wednesday, news notwithstanding. Uh, the next one's going to take a little longer. I'm going to spend a couple of days down in southwest Georgia and take a look at the second congressional district race and what that means for statewide races. So it's a little far to go down to places like Thomasville, so it'll take a little bit longer to put together. Yeah. Okay. Well, people should be listening uh, to your podcast, that's for sure. Um, All right. First of all, let's point out, Tamar, that Election Day is only eight weeks from today, November 8th, which is kind of astonishing that it is coming up so quickly. And even uh, uh, more important is that early voting starts in just a little bit more than a month. So we're really getting down to the heart of this election uh, campaign. And in a few minutes, I do want to talk about some of the races on the ballot. But Tamar, I think it's important today, uh, especially because of how you've been covering the special grand jury in Fulton County, looking into the efforts to overturn the election here, to turn our attention to what happened Uh, what we learned yesterday from the Department of Justice in terms of their investigation. We now know that DOJ um, has issued about 40 new subpoenas in its investigation of uh, the Trump and allied efforts to overturn the election. And they've seized the phones of at least two advisors, um, Boris Epstein and Mike Roman. And, And the reason... I, I want to bring that back to Georgia, is that one of the things that we believe is happening with those phones and the interest in those two men is that they were really very key to this effort to create a slate of fake electors in a number of states in an effort to have them replace the legitimate Biden electors. And, and so it seems to me that the Fulton County Grand Jury and the DOJ investigation running on very similar parallel tracks right now. 
Yeah, it it appears that these two separate investigations are starting to get kind of closer and closer together. We've known for months now that Fonnie Willis here in Fulton County was interested in the effort to appoint fake Republican electors. And she's actually subpoenaed some of the same folks mentioned in this story. Particularly, you mentioned uh, Boris Epstein, who uh, was a counsel who helped coordinate uh, Donald Trump and some of his efforts with the the fake electors. He was subpoenaed uh, a couple weeks ago as part of this inquiry. And I'm curious now, especially as some of these other names surface in relation to the DOJ inquiry, whether we'll start to see some of their names appear in Fulton County as well. The feds, I'm sure, have access to to, to records that Fulton County prosecutors have not been able to get their hands on yet. I will be curious to see how much, if at all, they're going to be sharing information with each other. Law enforcement tends to do that. Although as far as I know, there hasn't been that that sharing with DOJ yet. Um, but it may just be a matter of time. And we know also that the Justice Department has been interested for several months in this effort in Georgia specifically to appoint fake electors. Uh, a couple months ago, Earlier this summer, they um, they interviewed several Georgia Republicans who had joined in on that effort, including uh, uh, including David Schaefer, uh, Brad Carver, a Republican activist who is also one of the electors. Um, and they've also talked to several Republicans here who were initially signed on to be fake electors but decided not to. So they definitely seem to be closing in on many of the same people. And I'll be curious to see how much information sharing there will be. Tamar, one quick question before we bring in the rest of the panel. Um, We haven't heard much news in the last week, I think, out of the special grand jury. Um, And you've been on top of this uh, in a way that I I think uh, other reporters have not quite gotten the insights that you have. Um, Are they in a pause period or is things going on behind the scenes that we're just not aware of right now? Things are going on behind the scenes. Um, They issued requests or subpoenas to to talk to many people in Trump's inner orbit, including Mark Meadows, including Boris Epstein, as I I mentioned. I know that many of those folks are likely to fight their subpoenas, so I think they're gearing up for those fights. They're also very interested in two other areas um, that that maybe weren't as obvious at the outset outset of this inquiry. They're interested in this Coffee County election data breach uh, based on some Mm -hmm. of the new subpoenas we've seen recently, so my understanding is they're digging into some of that. They've also indicated they're interested in these efforts to to pressure Ruby Freeman, who was a Fulton County poll worker at State Farm Arena, um, efforts to pressure her to falsely admit to uh, committing election fraud, uh, which the feds have shown did not occur at State Farm Arena. So there's still plenty going on behind the scenes. And of course, looming is the biggest decision of them all for her, uh, for, for District Attorney Fonnie Willis, whether to subpoena Donald Trump. And she's getting mighty close to him right now by going after some of his top aides. Um, and I think that's the next big question on the horizon. Yeah, Stephen, we learned that uh, the uh, January 6th committee, which now that Congress is back in session, is about to get underway once again, is looking at, they're dealing with the same question. Do we subpoena Donald Trump? Do we call uh, uh, Mike Pence? Maybe an invitation rather than a subpoena, but one way or the other, they're trying to weigh whether they want to bring them in. But Stephen, let me ask you, and you're welcome to weigh in on that, but but let me ask you another question about the special grand jury. Fonnie Willis has said that she's sensitive to the fact that we have an election coming up soon. And I, I think I'm correct that she has said that she doesn't want to take any action that would interfere in any way with the election. And so after a certain point in October... I'm not sure we're going to get a whole lot happening in that investigation, Stephen. Right. I mean, she said uh, multiple times, most recently when she was asked at a press conference about a different case that she's prosecuting, um, there is a sensitivity around the election because a lot of the people that are being investigated or that are being asked to come in and answer things are on the ballot or could, or, you know, could have some sort of impact on Georgia's midterms, ranging from sitting Governor Brian Kemp to Lieutenant Governor nominee Burt Jones, who a judge has already ruled she's not allowed to look into because of a conflict of interest after she supported his opponent. And so you're probably not going to get any sort of overt actions by the special purpose grand jury, a.k.a. filings that we can see on a public docket or any sort of public activities as we start getting close to absentee ballots being sent out and early voting kicking off. But 
you know, that doesn't mean that all the work is stopping. I mean, there's still plenty of documents to review. There's still plenty of people that can come in behind the scenes that don't need public court fights over their subpoenas and what they can talk about. But it does, I mean, both this and the January 6th investigation and the document investigation into Mar-a-Lago, all of this is in the backdrop of the midterms. And I think another thing to watch, you know, just because Donald Trump hasn't been subpoenaed yet in any of those, doesn't mean that Donald Trump isn't going to make a lot of noise about it. And that could trickle down to races like Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp if he maybe comes to town and uh, says a lot of stuff about Bonnie Willis or says a lot of stuff about these cases. So it definitely hangs heavy over a place like Georgia, where there's a lot of key races and really all of these state and federal investigations are intertwined. Um, Margaret, uh, there was a really uh, very full profile of Fannie Willis in the New York Times the other day, giving us an indication of just how her uh, profile has risen in the national uh, news. And I thought it was interesting that one of the things she said was that she's kind of sorry uh, that if she had it to do over again, she probably wouldn't have been involved in the fundraiser uh, for uh, Charlie Bailey, uh, given that uh, he, of course, ended up. This was during the primary season. Charlie Bailey was not at that point the Democratic nominee. Nevertheless, Judge McBurney said, this looks wrong. He's now the nominee. He's running against Burt Jones. You've got it. We're recusing you. You cannot investigate him. Uh, but Fannie Willis also said that he was my, essentially, she said, he's my pal. I worked with him in the DA's office. This is a man I like uh, very much. Nevertheless, she kind of regrets that now. And Burt Jones, for the time being, is uh, he's not even a target at this point because of what of the ruling by Judge McBurney. Yeah, it's, you know, I think we all have grown up in this atmosphere of all is fair in love and war and politics. But now there's absolutely no room for human error anymore in politics. One strike in Europe. And you're out for at least half of the electorate in America right now. Um, honest mistakes are always, um, I think, are always interpreted as either um, sincere or cynical political plays. So um, I don't know where District Attorney Willis is going to go from from that error. You know where her political career is going to go after this investigation is over. But you know it. For all of my neighbors here in coastal Georgia who understand uh, what a king tide looks like, you know, this is the high tides that surge with a new or full moon. Uh, eight or nine feet of water can come up behind your house very quickly. I think both for her political career and perhaps even for Trump's political career, this is this is now a king tide political investigation with all these streams coming together. <laughs> Um, and and we don't know whether when the tide recedes, whose whose house is going to be left standing and who's going to be devastated. Yeah. Thank you for I, that I, co coastal <laughs> analogy, Donna. <laughs> I love it. I love that. You know, yes, I think the what happened with um, Charlie Bailey and uh, mm. the Madam D.A. Willis here in Fulton County changed everything for her. That was her big misstep for up prior to that. She was doing so well. Um, she had this upward trajectory in terms of the, the way people felt about her. I, you know, I know at the Capitol, there was respect for her when she came in uh, last year and she, she testified in hearings and that, those kinds of things. She's, she had all of this good stuff going on and the, the, this investigation taking place. And then this thing happened where she supported somebody. As you mentioned, she considered a friend and and felt blindsided by a lot of what what happened next and all of that. So I, I do think that we'll see things kind of tamp down with that investigation, at least publicly for a while until after the election, because she does not want to make another misstep. Tamar, I would. I would contend that no matter what, we were going to get to this point. I think it's so tricky when you are, you know, investigating a former president, one who still commands so much loyalty and who is still very much involved in public life and mulling a presidential run once again. Um, and, and the fact that she was calling in witnesses as high profile as the governor, the speaker, uh, the lieutenant governor candidate, no matter what, it was going to be such a tricky tightrope walk um, that I think we would have gotten to this point anyway, no matter what she would have done, um, you know, whether she was going to charge 
Trump or people in his orbit or not, people would have accused her of partisanship either way. Um, either you didn't go hard enough against him or, or you went way too hard and you're going after him for, for politics. So it was going to be a tricky tightrope walk from the beginning. I will say you've certainly seen the DA's office really kind of tamp down on, on things over the past couple of weeks since McBurney's ruling with a related to Burt Jones. Um, we're just seeing fewer filings, kind of less information coming out, at least voluntarily from the DA's office in those filings. Um, and so I, I'm curious to see how much that's going to be the status quo moving forward. Um, okay, you are well, starting that's... to see some witnesses, yeah. Some witnesses kind of spill some tea about their interactions with the DA's office, but the DA's office has been less forthcoming about it, for sure. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's turn uh, turn to talking about uh, the campaigns right now. Some of the big campaigns, um, Stephen. I, I was interested in the appearance that uh, Brian Kemp made with Nikki Haley when she came into Georgia last late last week to campaign for uh, both Herschel Walker and the governor. Um, and and I, I want to put it in this context. We know that around the country, ever since the ruling on Roe. Um, there are a lot of Republicans who have backed away from overt uh, campaigning around the issue of abortion, uh, no longer eager to trumpet the fact that they were partly, they're, they're one of the reasons that abortions are becoming harder and harder to get in many states. Um, and we know abortion remains a crucial issue in the election this year. Um, but it was interesting to me that during one of the appearances with Nikki Haley, uh, Trump, uh, Kemp very proudly talked about the fact that he was uh, one of the people responsible for one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. And, and he said this, and I'm going to quote him, the Supreme Court, through the decision-making, back to the states, I think they got the ruling right from a strict textualist view of the Constitution. As you all know, we passed a bill in 2019 that Georgians have known about for over three years now. We've been on the forefront of fighting for life, and I think most Georgians agree with that. Even if they may disagree with when when you should make an abortion illegal or not, I'm not. A, it's an odd statement in many ways to me because on one hand he's celebrating this tough law, and on the other he's acknowledging that there are people who don't really favor the law that we have in the state right now. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly an interesting position. And I think uh, the position of the governor and a lot of his allies is focusing more on the other things that Republicans have passed in Georgia, like uh, foster care reform, uh, like the going after human trafficking, uh, going after dealing with mental health, uh, adding some parental leave. And, you know, there's there's really there's really in post row you're really seeing two different conversations happening. One is some uh, Republicans trying to push things even further, call for a national ban, call for bans with no exceptions, and then there are others that are more you know like a Brian Kemp or Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or others that are focusing on the and then what comes next because there is a push among some Republicans and conservatives saying okay well if we're going to say there are no abortions, you can't do that, then what are we going to do to improve the lives of mothers and the lives of newborn children? And that's something that I think Brian Kemp is trying to walk the needle of, of talking about the things that Georgia Republicans have done to try to tackle some of the maternal issues and some of the like uh, issues around that, while also reminding the base that you know he did push this very strong abortion ban, one of the strictest in the country, and it's something that I think he sees himself in a position now where he can really do a little bit of both instead of focus solely on the economy or uh, let Stacey Abrams drive a lot of the conversation about abortion. Um, Margaret, meanwhile, uh, the Speaker of the Georgia House, David Ralston, was down your way. He spoke to the Savannah Rotary uh, the other day and the Joel to the AJC led with that item today, and, and um, Ralston avoided any of these hot-button issues like what uh, the abortion restrictions in Georgia. And he also said that he thought the rhetoric had, quote, gotten a little too heated, some might say uncivilized, in talking about how political people 
are uh, arguing, fighting with one another back and forth. Now, I will say that on this show, on a couple of occasions, Ralston has made it clear to us that he really, really is unhappy with the kind of language and behavior of Donald Trump over the years. So in a way, it's not surprising but he's moving in a different direction now, Margaret, because he recognizes how controversial this abortion law here is in Georgia. Yeah, and, and that speech here in Atlanta sort of sums up this bifurcated um, nature of the state Republican Party right now. Um, Speaker Ralston's temperament that he expressed in that speech matches the audience. The downtown Rotary Club of Savannah is the old money, old business set and they used to be uh, considered Rockefeller Republicans, people who wanted uh, pro-business policies with hands off and, and sort of turn a blind eye to what social policies and personal lives uh, were. And the modern Republican Party has become in, intertwined with the so-called culture wars. I think that Republicans here in our first district are really going to be torn when it comes to our local race, the Georgia first district, because for the first time, our incumbent, Buddy Carter, actually has a, a pretty strong candidate that he's running against. This is another white man, um, you know, in a nation full of identity politics. Uh, the Democratic challenger, Wade Herring, is a corporate lawyer. He is part of that downtown rotary set, too. And so people who are trying to figure out who they are as Republicans and what identity they want to be um, associated with, with the Republican Party, are really looking hard at Wade Herring as someone who looks like them, talks like them, and, and in a lot of ways, I think, represents those old-fashioned Republican values. And Wade Herring is, is, is putting together a pretty good campaign right now. Um, I want to come back to that first district race a little later in the show, but thank you for introducing it. Um, Donna, you've dealt with uh, Speaker Ralston for some time yeah. now. In many ways, it's not surprising that he wants to tamp down the uh, uh, the, the awful, the nasty rhetoric back and forth. Um, so he says the next session of the General Assembly, he wants to focus on things like education, on infrastructure, um, other issues that he believes are important to the growth of the state. Yeah, and I think that, um, first of all, Speaker Ralston usually doesn't play his hand ahead of time when it comes to legislative session. He likes to kind of wait until the session happens and then kind of give people an idea of what to expect. So he's certainly not going to give us a whole lot ahead of time. But I, I think some of the things that have been discussed on this show with education and some of the issues they didn't deal with that are really important um, to this state. Now that the, the national report card has come out and said that kids are not, uh, have lost so much in learning and things like that. And so much of the focus of the legislative session was on these culture issues dealing with education. So I think there it will be an effort to make sure that they shore up that. But back to what Stephen was saying, you know, the, the past legislation, um, the past legislative session dealing with the abortion issues was to shore up, you know, the focus on these kids, um, children who come into this world who they realize under this law may be unwanted and may face abuse and neglect and other issues. So there was this effort to, you know, bolster foster care system to create, you know, the human trafficking, this other sweeping legislation dealing with mental health and all, health and all of that. But there are still issues to solve. Maternal mortality high in the state. Pregnant women in rural areas having to go miles and miles for obstetric, uh, obstetric, obstetric care. Uh, and um, women in color, women of color in particular, who face fatal decisions when it comes to that. So I think they're going to, uh, when it comes to abortion, deal with that. But I really do see them focusing a lot on education because, you know, they just really did not get, deal with the whole learning loss process in the last legislative session. Well, just as a side note here, we should point out that uh, Brian Kemp yesterday unveiled a plan to devote uh, some $25 million to students who can catch, to, because they need to catch up uh, their behind. You know, critics point out the $25 million is a drop in the bucket compared to the overall state budget for education. Nevertheless, it's an indication that he gets that he's got to do more uh, to uh, to shore up uh, the problems we're having with our schools. Tomorrow, I don't want to leave this without giving a shout out to our frequent panelist, Audrey Haynes, 
because David Ralston told the jolt that uh, what has made him feel uh, more op- positive about the way we have to deal with politics in a more uh, in a more civilized in a uh, in a more positive way. He said he got a life-affirming experience when he visited Audrey Haynes' applied politics class at the University of Georgia, where he says students asked him a bunch of constructive questions, not the hot-button questions. So I think tomorrow we just need to say, Audrey, you keep keep bringing great people out there, and they make news every now and then. (laughs) Amen. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, uh, I got a lot more that I want to talk about with this panel. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. A couple of quick announcements uh, before we move on with this terrific uh, panel. Number one, I got some uh, feedback from a few of you uh, when I mentioned uh, yesterday that on Thursday night, I'm going to be doing what I think should be a really interesting conversation with um, Vladimir Zelensky's former press secretary, Yulia Mendel, who's written a book called The Fight of Our Lives. And she really gives us insight about what it was like to work with Zelensky uh, as he took over the presidency, you know, having risen from his uh, role as one of the country's most popular TV stars. Uh, and she talks about uh, his transformation. It's at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival. Uh, the Book Festival tells me there are still some tickets available for that. Uh, I've tweeted out how you can get information about it. Um, and uh, I think uh, the Political Rewind uh, uh, Twitter hand, uh, has uh, sent it out, too. So you can check that out. Uh, also, very quickly, if you live down on the coast, on Sunday, I'm going to be speaking at uh, Christ Church on St. Simon's Island. Um, it's one of the historic churches in Georgia. And we're going to be talking about, is there any way to find our way back, as Speaker Ralston discussed, to civil conversation in politics? I'm skeptical. But we'll have the conversation on Sunday afternoon. And there are seats available for that as well. Okay, enough of that. Um, Tamar Hallerman is here. Margaret Coker is here. Donna Lowry and Stephen Fowler are here. And uh, Tamar, let me start with you. Um, There's been a lot of conversation lately about Stacey Abrams' efforts, especially to reach out to black men voters. We know based on polling that she's underperformed to an extent with black voters in general, but she's made a significant effort to uh, talk to black men who she says, if they turn out for her, she'll be elected uh, governor. Um, And tomorrow, part of that is the thing that Stephen's talking about. He's going to be in southwest Georgia to talk about the second congressional district race, but that blue belt which has a lot of African-American voters down there, is crucial to what Abrams is trying to do. Absolutely. And I think historically, a lot of folks write off the black vote because it so overwhelmingly tends to go to Democrats. But in a state that's so closely, you know, that elections now are so closely contentious, you know, contended, um, you know, even a 5% dip in turnout um, or, if, if the Republican is able to peel off 5% of a different of, of a particular demographic, that can make a giant difference. So historically, Democrats have, have gotten about 90% of the vote of, of black men. This uh, The latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll found Abrams was only getting about 80%. That was 5% less than what Warnock is getting and about 10% below the kind of level that Democrats think that they need. And that could be enough, you know, especially when we're talking about in this last presidential race when Biden won Georgia by 12,000 votes, any little margin like that, whatever Republicans are able to peel away could be the difference maker in an election like this. So we've seen from the Abrams campaign an effort to to reach out specifically to black men. She held an event in in Atlanta 
um, with different radio personalities to, to try and talk specifically to the issues of importance to, to black men. Uh, but we'll see exactly how that, that ends up working, especially in an election year where there isn't a presidential race at the top of the ticket to, to drive term turnout. Donna? Yeah, I, I totally agree that there, um, she does have this problem, but it is not a Georgia problem. I think Georgia is dealing with something that we're seeing nationwide when it comes to black men. I was, I was curious that, um, there was an associate, associated press survey, votecast survey that showed in 2020, uh, 12% of black men voted for Donald Trump compared with 6% of black women. So, uh, overall, it can be seen as black men are more conservative than black women, but also overall, men are more conservative than women when it comes to issues. Black women have been fired up uh, for the Democratic Party for a while now. And then the other thing that's happening is there, there may not be issues that black men care about that... Um, that Stacey Abrams is really focusing on, that they want to hear about. And there's also, I, I contend that there is also this issue of just women in general in those positions overall, that we're still at a point where we just, um, where men are not as likely to vote for women when it comes to, um, when it comes to political issues or, in, or see women in power. And so we, we've had a problem with that across the country and certainly in Georgia of seeing women put into um, positions politically. Stephen, you talked about heading down to uh, the southwest corner of the state to look at the second district congressional race earlier in the show. But you also said that the the um, that race could have a lot of impact on statewide races as well. Right. And I mean, you you look at the Southwest Georgia District where Sanford Bishop has never really had a serious challenger. He's had crossover appeal. He's a very, very moderate Democrat. He, I, I believe his district is the least majority black, majority black district in the country. And it's one where there's a serious Republican challenger who's mounting a serious campaign and in turn, is making Sanford Bishop raise more money than he's ever raised before and put more of a campaign effort than he's had to recently. And that, in turn, plus visits by Stacey Abrams and visits by Raphael Warnock, is firing up Democrats a lot more, especially Black Democrats in the Black Belt in Southwest Georgia. And so what you could see is, honestly, this kind of backfiring effect where having a serious Republican challenger could actually be better for Democrats because there's more money, there's more manpower, there's more incentive. And the kind of message that resonates in Southwest Georgia and that resonates with voters that have sent Sanford Bishop to Congress for decades, that type of message is being drawn out from Raphael Warnock and drawn out from Stacey Abrams in a way that you wouldn't necessarily see them talk in Metro Atlanta or Metro Savannah or some of the other bigger urban areas. So it's a really interesting race that I think could have a lot of bearing, like I said, on the outcome. But as far as Abrams targeted outreach goes, I mean, like Donna mentioned, this is something that's going on for years and years and all across the country. When Kamala Harris was in town back in the 2020 presidential primary, she had an event that was focused on black men. And I mean, she was just eviscerated by many of the attendees there asking her questions, especially around criminal justice of like, you know, Democrats don't really do much for criminal justice and they target black men just as much as white people and the cops do. And like there's a lot of built in resistance for black men voting for Democrats, especially a black woman candidate. And so Abrams is really trying to go above and beyond to get those voters and to reach out to them and to hear their concerns in a way that, you know, somebody like somebody else wouldn't necessarily have that interaction with Okay. Um, but by the way, uh, Sanford Bishop's Republican opponent in that general election is Chris West, who uh, won a pretty hard-fought uh, primary to get into that uh, space. Um, and and it's, a, it's a crucial race, and uh, we'll be watching it as we move toward Election Day. And while we're talking about congressional races, Margaret, you mentioned it earlier, but I've said on this show that uh, while we spend an awful lot of time talking about the top races, the governor's race, the Senate race, we really need to give our listeners 
some information about many other races on the ballot before Election Day. And one of them is that interesting first district race where you would assume typically that the incumbent Buddy Carter uh, has a pretty easy path to victory. But there are a lot of analysts out there who believe that Wade Herring, the Democratic opponent in this race, um, might in fact give him a challenge. Talk about that race with us. Yeah, sure. So um, Representative Carter is um, is someone who was a local mayor in Pooler, one of the fastest growing municipalities in all of Georgia. He's been uh, a state representative. He's now, uh, of course, um, in Congress. And he has someone who has been um, walking a very fine line between being part of of the Trump wing of the Republican Party, but also having to sort of thread that needle about what his first district Republicans also represent. A lot of people here up and down the coast are really tired of Trump. They really uh, don't like the fact that that Buddy Carter uh, was one of the Congress people who voted against ratifying the um, the the 2020 presidential. Um, uh, results. And so he's he's been not as outspoken, of course, as Marjorie Taylor Greene, but someone with a voting record that resembles a member of, of the Congressional Freedom Caucus without actually being a formal member of that caucus. And this, again, this sort of civil war between the states, uh, the states Republicans right now is something that Buddy Carter represents. He's been formally endorsed by Trump. It's something that he is not campaigning on. In fact, he is uh, hardly mentions it except for, um, you know, he'll, he'll tweet out um, pictures of him and Trump at, at the random moments um, as he's done over the summer. But in fact, he's he's actually, I think, running a little bit scared right now. All the conventional wisdom shows that the first district is is safely Republican. Um, it's about plus nine when it comes to the split between Republican and Democratic voters. But he's up against a pretty formidable candidate in that when you've got Republicans who don't know which way to turn and where their core identities are as voters, uh, their Democratic candidate here um, is is Wade Herring, who I've mentioned is a is a lifelong corporate lawyer who um, actually attends the same church as Buddy Carter in downtown Savannah. You know, he is a man who can appeal to a lot of different segments um, of the voting public. And I think um, Mr. Herring has one of the steepest challenges is actually trying to pull, like Stacey Abrams, uh, a lot more of, of the black vote, especially the black male vote, because when you you are now in this hyperpartisan world that we live in, identity politics matter. And when the majority of Democrats in the first district also are black, you've got to appeal to a lot of different people at a lot of different times. And so it's going to be a, a really interesting barometer of how important the Trump uh, backing, Trump endorsements are in Georgia right now and where the future of the Democratic Party lies as well. So, Tamar, we should point out um, the, the current uh, has done a number of stories on this race, of course, because it's in the heart of where they're based. Um, and one of those stories points out that coastal Georgia is pretty firmly red. Republicans have held the first district seat for almost 30 years. And in the 2020 election, Donald Trump won the vote there 55 percent to 43 percent over Joe Biden. So Herring may be an attractive candidate and a new kind of candidate to run against Buddy Carter, but it's still a tough race for uh, Democrats. And I don't think it's on any national Democratic organization's radar screen, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, it's an interesting kind of barometer, especially with, you know, how much dissatisfaction there might be in terms of how people think Buddy Carter is doing. Uh, this is not a presidential election year. So that tends to lean in favor of, of Republicans and kind of lower turnout races. But I guess we'll, we'll see, especially when we do have a different type of Democratic candidate than what we've seen in previous years. All right, let's do this. Um, let's get to uh, the final break of the show today, and we'll come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. 
Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen Fowler, um, let me uh, ask you about an update on a story that we spent a lot of time talking about on Political Rewind yesterday, and that is this surprise announcement by Wellstar that they are closing on November 1st, the Atlanta Medical Center, um, which is one of the only two uh, uh, you know, uh, high-level uh, emergency trauma centers in, in, in the region, uh, Grady, of course, being the other one. It's become an issue in the gubernatorial race. Stacey Abrams says a full expansion of Medicaid would have helped infuse Atlanta Medical Center with uh, money. Uh, governor Kemp's taken a different approach as an incumbent. He can call people together in his office as the governor and say, let's find a solution. And now, Stephen, we learn that the governor, uh, along with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, uh, uh, DeKalb County's uh, CEO Michael Thurman, and Rob Pitts, chair of the Fulton County Commission, have gotten together to talk about this problem. And they are going to unveil apparently a $200 million uh, influx of money for Grady. Ironically, of course, it comes out of federal COVID relief funds, which all the Republicans in the congressional delegation voted against. Stephen? Yeah, it's, I mean, everything is a campaign issue at this point. That's just the nature of where we are in Georgia. But there's already a lot of pushback to this idea of using one-time money, uh, a one-time infusion shot in the arm to help Grady because there's a lot of arguments from Democrats and really people that live in Atlanta that say, why do a one-time boost to help one hospital when the other hospital could stay open or could have more effort to stay open and the state is leaving money sitting on the table by not expanding Medicaid? It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of angst around this decision and there's a lot of angst around feeling like what, the governor's priorities are, what the state's priority is, and what the medical companies, you know, the, the hospital company, what their priorities are in choosing to close a major uh, healthcare center in the middle of a major city uh, while, you know, they're wondering if this would happen if it was uh, Atlanta Medical Center, instead of Atlanta Medical Center, if it was Alpharetta Medical Center, for example. And so, you know, it, everything's political, but at the end of the day, there's also a major, major healthcare gap coming to the city of Atlanta. I, I want to point out, and then we're going to move on, uh, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about this as it moves forward. It's something we haven't said yet. Is that, of course, remember, Wellstar is a private corporation. It's a nonprofit, but nevertheless, it is a private company that runs this uh, facility. They have something like $2 billion uh, um, uh, of money that they could uh, be using, uh, but they believe that uh, that Atlanta Medical Center is a losing proposition. And we should point out that in contrast to Mar, um, Grady Hospital is essentially owned by DeKalb County and Fulton County. It, they are publicly, owned, it's an entity owned by two governments, which makes a huge difference in terms of needing how the uh, organizations that run these hospitals feel about staying open to care for indigent patients and others. Exactly. What's your responsibility to care for these patients, many of whom are underinsured, not insured, many of them are low income, might not be able to pay their hospital bills? How much is there a social responsibility to look after those folks, especially if it's really going to hit your balance sheets hard, versus a place, as Stephen mentioned, like Alpharetta or Roswell, where you have a lot of wealthier, whiter patients who are insured, where you can get way more profits for for doing what you're, you're doing. And I think this is a a narrative that we're going to be talking about for a long time. What the what kind of responsibility you have, especially these giant hospital chains that buy packages of hospitals with, in multiple places where they see certain ones as kind of crown jewels and others kind of as, as money losers and how much responsibility they have, especially in places with poorer and more indigent patients. Okay, thank you for uh, helping us catch up a little on where that story stands uh, now. Donna, let me turn to another interesting story that relates to another subject that's gotten a lot of attention on the show, especially in the campaign season, and that's proliferation of guns. Um, American Express, MasterCard, and Visa have now announced um, 
something that I think many people will find an innovative approach to looking at gun sales. They are now going to have a separate accounting for how much money is spent on weapons, on firearms. And as a result of that, they'll be able to give us a much clearer picture of just how prolific weapon sales are in the country. It's going to be controversial. Obviously, the NRA and other gun advocates are very upset about this, but it's going to be an interesting way to see new data about gun ownership in America. Oh, absolutely. And I think people, um, there are people who would like to see something that that gives us an idea about gun ownership. I, there are very few people who I talk to who are hearing what's going on in the news when it comes to things like the horrible shooting deaths of those two Cobb County um, sheriff's deputies who don't think that there is possibly a tie between concealed carry with no no permits to get guns in Georgia and what we see happening when it comes to um, crime in the area. Excuse me, that we're seeing not not I shouldn't say in the area, but throughout the country we're seeing. So this is a way of possibly looking at that and seeing where things are. And um, it may be interesting to see whether the NRA and or gun enthusiasts decide to buy guns another way. I don't know, because um, and, you know, and not using their credit cards. But uh, the fact that these credit card companies who really you don't hear get involved in things like this very often uh, to that they've decided that this is something that they want to do to make sure that people understand where where this money is going, where the, who's buying and um, the kind of just this pure picture of who's investing in these guns and where they are. Margaret, up until now, gun sales have been categorized under um, the general merchandise merchant code. Um, now, the credit card companies do have specific merchant codes for some other uh, things that, that they uh, uh, deal with, like I think plumbing supplies for, is one example. But to single out and create a separate merchant code for weapons, for firearms right now, obviously the um, people who want more uh, gun safety laws in the country are in favor of this. But here's just an example of what's being said by some Republicans. Um, they're saying that if you categorize firearm retailers under a separate merchant code, it's a, it's a step toward a payment system that will monitor and track, and they say, politically disfavored industries. It raises serious privacy concerns and... Um, and, and will, in fact, put gun buyers in the spotlight. Margaret? Yeah, I, I take issue with the fact that the, that the gun industry is somehow politically disfavored. I, I think that there's a track record, both federally and locally, that gun manufacturers and gun lobbyists, pro-gun lobbyists, get almost everything they want when it comes to um, laws passed in America. I do, however, agree with the privacy um, um, concerns, as I um, also am someone who rarely ever gives my email address to retailers and keeps the number of apps that I have on my phone to a minimum. I think the privacy concerns are real and are important. I, I don't see this as somehow a, a huge political um, uh, step as, as opposed to a huge commercial step. You know, credit card companies are selling our, our personal information um, everywhere. So I would see, again, that being singled out as a gun owner means that you're going to be put on all these other different lists try of, of, of different companies trying to sell you other things. So um, as a consumer, um, I want to keep my anon anonymity. Um, I'm not quite sure how politics in, in a real effective way are, are, are going to um, are really going to result in, in anything different in American life because of this credit card issue. Stephen, and then tomorrow I'd like to get you in on this. Yesterday on the show, we talked about the fact that there are two different approaches to gun violence being played out in the election cycle. Uh, Democrat, Republicans talk about uh, crime and the need to fight crime. Democrats talk about, in the state of Georgia, the proliferation of weapons as a result of our liberal uh, gun laws. Um, uh, talk about that just for a second here, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, I mean, again, everything is politics. Everything is zero sum in these discussions. 
but uh, you know, Georgia. I mean, there there's a way. I mean, you're seeing it in the governor's race too. Like Stacey Abrams is, you know, says she like her grandmother taught her how to shoot a gun, and she's in favor of responsible gun ownership. Democrats, especially that are running for statewide office, are talking about responsible gun ownership and less, you know, anti-gun. Guns are bad. Everything's uh, terrible and awful. And Republicans are saying that, you know that they're trying to turn that on its head by saying that the gun laws that Democrats want would just allow criminals to do more and that they need to do more to tackle crime. Um, Tamara, let's get one last comment from you on this. I'd love to see more data about how gun control advocates think that this specific policy change will move the needle on, on gun control. They're saying it could help stop trafficking of guns. It could help law enforcement identify dangerous purchases by by potential mass shooters. Um, I'm curious how much of a difference it, it could actually make, or if it leads to what Margaret kind of mentioned, just even more kind of tracking when it comes to consumer purchases. Um, th- thank you for, for, for that. Um, all right, we are out of time uh, for today's show. Um, what a great conversation. Uh, Donna Lowry, Margaret Coker, Stephen Fowler, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. By the way, tomorrow is a Political Rewind newsletter day. So if you don't have a subscription to our newsletter yet, uh, you can get it delivered to your inbox by just going to gpb.org slash newsletters. We'd love to have you uh, join us. Thank you all for being with us uh, today. We're back with another brand new Political Rewind tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody. Thanks, panel. <laughs>